Chapter Twenty of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Twenty. Lorna begins her story. I cannot go through all my thoughts so as to make them clear to you nor have I ever dwelt on things, to shape a story of them. I know not where the beginning was, nor where the middle ought to be, nor even how at the present time I feel, or think, or ought to think. If I look for help to those around me, who should tell me right and wrong, being older and much wiser, I meet sometimes with laughter, and at other times with anger. There are but two in the world who ever listen and try to help me. One of them is my grandfather, and the other is a man of wisdom whom we call the counsellor. My grandfather, Sir Ensor Doone, is very old and harsh of manner, except indeed to me. He seems to know what is right and wrong, but not to want to think of it. The counsellor, on the other hand, though full of life and subtleties, treats my questions as of play, and not gravely worth his while to answer, unless he can make wit of them. And among the women there are none with whom I can hold converse, since my Aunt Sabina died, who took such pains to teach me. She was a lady of high repute and lofty ways and learning, but grieved and harassed more and more by the coarseness and the violence and the ignorance around her. In vain she strove, from year to year, to make the young men hearken, to teach them what became their birth, and give them sense of honour. It was her favourite word, poor thing, and they called her Old Aunt Honour. Very often she used to say that I was her only comfort, and I am sure she was my only one, and when she died it was more to me than if I had lost a mother. For I have no remembrance now of father or of mother, although they say that my father was the eldest son of Sir Ensor Doone, and the bravest and the best of them, and so they call me heiress to this little realm of violence, and in sorry sport sometimes I am their princess or their queen. Many people living here, as I am forced to do, would perhaps be very happy, and perhaps I ought to be so. We have a beauteous valley, sheltered from the cold of winter and power of the summer sun, untroubled also by the storms and mists that veil the mountains, although I must acknowledge that it is apt to rain too often. The grass, moreover, is so fresh, and the brook so bright and lively, and flowers of so many hues come after one another that no one need be dull if only left alone with them. And so in the early days, perhaps, when morning breathes around me and the sun is going upward, and light is playing everywhere, I am not so far beside them all as to live in shadow. But when the evening gathers down, and the sky is spread with sadness, and the day has spent itself, then a cloud of lonely trouble falls, like night, upon me. I cannot see the things I quest for of a world beyond me. I cannot join the peace and quiet of the depth above me neither have I any pleasure in the brightness of the stars. What I want to know is something none of them can tell me. What am I, and why set here, and when shall I be with them? I see that you are surprised a little at this, my curiosity. Perhaps such questions never spring in any wholesome spirit, but they are in the depths of mine, and I cannot be quit of them. Meantime all around me is violence and robbery, coarse delight and savage pain, reckless joke and hopeless death. 
Is it any wonder that I cannot sink with these, that I cannot so forget my soul as to live the life of brutes, and die the death more horrible because it dreams of waking? There is none to lead me forward, there is none to teach me right. Young as I am, I live beneath a curse that lasts forever. Here Lorna broke down for a while, and cried so very piteously that, doubting of my knowledge and of any power to comfort, I did my best to hold my peace, and tried to look very cheerful. Then, thinking that might be bad manners, I went to wipe her eyes for her. "'Master Ridd,' she began again, "'I am both ashamed and vexed at my own childish folly. But you, who have a mother, who thinks, you say, so much of you, and sisters in a quiet home, you cannot tell, it is not likely, what a lonely nature is, how it leaps in mirth sometimes, with only heaven touching it, and how it falls away desponding when the dreary weight creeps on. It does not happen many times that I give way like this, more shame now to do so when I ought to entertain you. Sometimes I am so full of anger that I dare not trust a speech at things they cannot hide from me, and perhaps you would be much surprised that reckless men would care so much to elude a young girl's knowledge. They used to boast to Aunt Sabina of pillage and of cruelty, on purpose to enrage her, but they never boast to me. It even makes me smile sometimes to see how awkwardly they come and offer for temptation to me shining packets, half concealed, of ornaments and finery, of rings or chains or jewels, lately belonging to other people. But when I try to search the past, to get a sense of what befell me ere my own perception formed, to feel back for the lines of childhood as a trace of gossamer, then I only know that naught lives longer than God wills it. So may after sin go by, for we are children always, as the counsellor has told me, so may we, beyond the clouds, seek this infancy of life, and never find its memory. But I am talking now of things which never come across me when any work is toward. It might have been a good thing for me to have had a father to beat these rovings out of me, or a mother to make a home and teach me how to manage it. For, being left with none, I think, and nothing ever comes of it, nothing, I mean, which I can grasp and have with any surety, nothing but faint images and wonderment and wandering. But often, when I am neither searching back into remembrance, nor asking of my parents, but occupied by trifles, something like a sign or message or a token of some meaning seems to glance upon me, whether from the rustling wind, or sound of distant music, or the singing of a bird, like the sun on snow it strikes me with a pain of pleasure. And often when I wake at night, and listen to the silence, or wander far from people in the grayness of the evening, or stand and look at quiet water having shadows over it, some vague image seems to hover on the skirt of vision, ever-changing place and outline, ever flitting as I follow. This so moves and hurries me, in the eagerness and longing, that straightway all my chance is lost, and memory, scared like a wild bird, flies. Or am I as a child, perhaps, chasing a flown cageling, who, among the branches free, plays and peeps at the offered cage, as a home not to be urged on him, and means to take his time of coming, if he comes at all? 
Often, too, I wonder at the odds of fortune, which made me, helpless as I am and fond of peace and reading, the heiress of this mad domain, the sanctuary of unholiness. It is not likely that I shall have much power of authority, and yet the counsellor creeps up to be my lord of the treasury, and his son aspires to my hand, as of a royal alliance. Well, honour among thieves, they say, and mine is the first honour, although among decent folk perhaps honesty is better. We should not be so quiet here, and safe from interruption, but that I have begged one privilege rather than commanded it. This was that the lower end, just this narrowing of the valley, where it is most hard to come at, might be looked upon as mine, except for purposes of guard. Therefore none beside the sentries ever trespass on me here, unless it be my grandfather, or the counsellor, or Carver. By your face, Master Ridd, I see that you have heard of Carver Doone. For strength and courage and resource he bears the first repute among us, as might well be expected from the son of the counsellor. But he differs from his father in being very hot and savage, and quite free from argument. The counsellor, who is my uncle, gives his son the best advice, commending all the virtues with eloquence and wisdom, yet himself abstaining from them accurately and impartially. You must be tired of this story, and the time I take to think, and the weakness of my telling, but my life from day to day shows so little variance. Among the writers there is none whose safe return I watch for, I mean none more than other, and indeed there seems no risk, all are now so feared of us. Neither of the old men is there whom I can revere or love, except alone my grandfather, whom I love with trembling. Neither of the women any whom I like to deal with, unless it be a little maiden whom I saved from starving. A little Cornish girl she is, and shaped in western manner, not so very much less in width than if you take her lengthwise. Her father seems to have been a minor, a Cornish man, as she declares, of more than average excellence, and better than any two men to be found in Devonshire, or any four in Somerset. Very few things can have been beyond his power of performance, and yet he left his daughter to starve upon a peat-rick. She does not know how this was done, and looks upon it as a mystery, the meaning of which will some day be clear, and redound to her father's honour. His name was Simon Carfax, and he came as the captain of a gang from one of the Cornish stanneries. Gwenny Carfax, my young maid, well remembers how her father was brought up from Cornwall. Her mother had been buried just a week or so before, and he was sad about it, and had been off his work, and was ready for another job. Then people came to him by night, and said that he must want a change, and everybody lost their wives, and work was the way to mend it. So what with grief and overthought and the inside of a square bottle, Gwenny says they brought him off to become a mighty captain, and choose the country round. The last she saw of him was this, that he went down a ladder somewhere on the wilds of Exmoor, leaving her with bread and cheese, and his travelling hat to see to, and from that day to this he never came above the ground again, so far as we can hear of. But Gwenny, holding to his hat, and having eaten the bread and cheese, when he came no more to help her, dwelt three days near the mouth of the hole, and then it was closed over the while that she was sleeping. 
With weakness and with want of food she lost herself distressfully, and went away for miles or more, and lay upon a peat-rick to die before the ravens. That very day I chanced to return from Aunt Sabina's dying-place, for she would not die in Glen Doone, she said, lest the angels feared to come for her, and so she was taken to a cottage in a lonely valley. I was allowed to visit her, for even we durst not refuse the wishes of the dying, and if a priest had been desired we should have made bold with him. Returning very sorrowful and caring now for nothing, I found this little stray thing lying, her arms upon her, and not a sign of life except the way that she was biting. Black root-stuff was in her mouth, and a piece of dirty sheep's wool, and at her feet an old egg-shell of some bird of the moorland. I tried to raise her, but she was too square and heavy for me, and so I put food in her mouth, and left her to do right with it. And this she did in a little time, for the victuals were very choice and rare, being what I had taken over to tempt poor Aunt Sabina. Gwenny ate them without delay, and then was ready to eat the basket and the ware that contained them. Gwenny took me for an angel though I am little like one, as you see, Master Ridd, and she followed me, expecting that I would open wings and fly when we came to any difficulty. I brought her home with me, so far as this can be a home, and she made herself my sole attendant without so much as asking me. She has beaten two or three other girls, who used to wait upon me, until they are afraid to come near the house of my grandfather. She seems to have no kind of fear even of our roughest men, and yet she looks with reverence and awe upon the counsellor. As for the wickedness and theft and revelry around her, she says it is no concern of hers, and they know their own business best. By this way of regarding men she has won upon our riders, so that she is almost free from all control of place and season, and is allowed to pass where none even of the youths may go. Being so wide and short and flat, she has none to pay her compliments, and, were there any, she would scorn them as not being Cornish men. Sometimes she wanders far, by moonlight, on the moors and up the rivers, to give her father, as she says, another chance of finding her, and she comes back not a whit defeated, or discouraged, or depressed, but confident that he is only waiting for the proper time. Herein she sets me good example of a patience and contentment hard for me to imitate. Oftentimes I am vexed by things I cannot meddle with, yet which cannot be kept from me, that I am at the point of flying from this dreadful valley, and risking all that can betide me in the unknown outer world. If it were not for my grandfather I would have done so long ago, but I cannot bear that he should die with no gentle hand to comfort him and I fear to think of the conflict that must ensue for the government, if there be a disputed succession. Ah, me! We are to be pitied greatly, rather than condemned, by people whose things we have taken from them. For I have read, and seem almost to understand about it, that there are places on the earth where gentle peace and love of home and knowledge of one's neighbors prevail, and are, with reason, looked for as the usual state of things. There honest folk may go to work in the glory of the sunrise, with hope of coming home again quite safe in the quiet evening, and finding all their children. And even in the darkness they have no fear of lying down and dropping off to slumber, 
and hearken to the wind of night, not as to an enemy trying to find entrance, but a friend who comes to tell the value of their comfort. Of all this golden ease I hear, but never saw the like of it, and haply I shall never do so, being born to turbulence. Once indeed I had the offer of escape and kinsman's aid, and high place in the gay bright world, and yet I was not tempted much, or at least dared not to trust it. And it ended very sadly, so dreadfully that I even shrink from telling you about it, for that one terror changed my life, in a moment, at a blow, from childhood and from thoughts of play and commune with the flowers and trees, to a sense of death and darkness, and a heavy weight of earth. Be content now, Master Ridd, ask me nothing more about it, so your sleep be sounder. But I, John Ridd, being young and new, and very fond of hearing things to make my blood to tingle, had no more of manners than to urge poor Lorna onwards, hoping, perhaps, in depth of heart, that she might have to hold by me, when the worst came to the worst of it. Therefore she went on again. End of chapter 20 Recording by Michelle Harris